This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A source has told media that the private investigators that the Sherman family has hired to take another peek at what the police are also doing, uh, which is obviously around the death of Barry and Honey Sherman, uh, they say the private investigators, they were murdered by multiple killers. Does this contradict what the police are saying? How does this all fit together? Let's bring in Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. He is with us now. Ross, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Yeah, good to be with you on this uh, who done it, when and how many, I guess, and for how much, or what is the right question. So initially when this all started, it was thought of a murder-suicide. The family, of course, saying that they did not believe that was the case, that they could not see that as uh, as a motive uh, at all and hired their own private investigators. So what's going on and, and how is this information different? Well, it certainly it certainly is different information. It certainly appears to be uh, a leak of some sort. Actually, uh, you know, it's it, as I look at this case, Scott. We've got the two sides now: one saying murder suicide, uh, another leak uh, from some sources saying, "Oh no, it's a double homicide by contract killers." And the the confounding thing is, from what we're able to tell, and what I know from talking to my sources is that both stories are really consistent with what we know so far. Like, I, we don't know enough to be able to say that one is right or one is wrong. So it's, it's interesting as to, you know, the source for the latest information. So uh, I'm trying to interpret what it is that you're actually saying here, Ross. So why? So if both have the same information, why does it appear that one is coming to one conclusion and the other the other? Well, okay, there you've just asked the great question, as you usually do, Scott. That who has the information? The ones who have the information right now is the Toronto Police Homicide Squad. The, the private investigators, they've only been given access to, uh, you know, RIP, the, the, you know, the bodies of the Shermans, where they've conducted a separate autopsy, and they've apparently done their own separate toxicology tests. But they have not been given... Uh, any access to the home yet where the evidence is or or anything else that the police have done so it's interesting that the conclusion from whoever gave this information i don't doubt that some of that information may possibly be correct that's been reported in the headlines but whoever gave that information uh likely in my opinion probably wasn't part of the investigative team for doing it that they don't they know that that information, some of it that went out there, if it's accurate, for instance, when the likely time of death was based on the fact she was wearing the same clothes as a few days before when they found her, hmm. information like that, those are cards that homicide detectives use in their investigation when they're asking and interviewing people about their whereabouts, what they did and what they know. And now all of a sudden, that's a card they can't play. And I've hmm. heard it said uh from, well, I personally spoke to a couple of the investigators out at the scene, and they said that they're in no way going to interfere with the police investigation. They said they're on the same team as Toronto Police. They just want to get to the answers of it. They're not going to get in the way of the police. So this this leak that's come out uh, really does tend to get in the way. <laughs> exactly. I mean, my, my next question is, so does this help or, or hurt the police investigation? Uh, could it be that a private investigating team is letting information out to the public that the police at this time want to keep uh, under control? Well, I know that uh, Joe Warmington of the Toronto Sun spoke 
directly. He tried to contact the, the doctor who did the forensic autopsy for the family, uh, Dr. Chason, who was the former Ontario chief forensic pathologist, and he deferred saying, I'm answering nothing. All the answers are going to come out of uh, uh, the lawyer, Mr. Greenspan. And Joe t- spoke to Mr. Greenspan, and he said to him, uh, it's not us that's leaking this. If it's anybody on our team who would have said this, they'll be gone off the team. I'm not going to confirm or deny anything he said, but he said that's not how we're going to proceed as an investigation is in getting in the way of this. So there's there's some contradiction there. My, I mean, if I had to guess, if I had to guess as to a source on this, my guess would be someone involved who was in the room while the autopsy was going on, mm. who may have been an assistant or a worker there or something like that, potentially. Because these, these investigators that Clat uh, has, and even the, even the forensic pathologist, I, I've had sources say that people who know him say that he would not make a conclusion that this was a double homicide. They said that's not how he operates. That's not the sort of thing they would do. So how so, accurate do you think this information is, Ross? I, I think that the, the parts that sound to me like there's going to be some accuracy to them is the information about marks on the wrists is likely going to be accurate. The information about uh, the clothes that she was wearing were a couple of days old is likely accurate. The information about the fact that there was uh, some cuts to her face, her nose, and her her chin uh, is likely accurate. The fact that she was apparently sitting or lying face down with the blood coming off of her before she was I, I, I'm sorry, I don't like talking about this so, so graphically yeah. on the radio because right. these, are, these are people, you yeah. know, they're people. Yeah. Uh, before the body was put in that position, it's probably accurate. I don't think that the conclusions are necessarily accurate. You can't tell from looking at an autopsy if someone was paid to go kill somebody. Yeah. I mean, you can't tell from looking at an autopsy. Generally speaking, you can have a guess, but you can't conclude that there was more than one person or two people. Like, so there's certain conclusions you can't make without a full appreciation and access to all of the evidence. Hmm. Uh, whether, and I'm trying to make this as generic as I can, um, can you tell if somebody was strangled versus hung? Um, because obviously you can't strangle yourself. So how much information can be determined from that? Yeah, uh, my, my, I would say that a lot of information can be determined from that. An absolute lot of information, because what it all has to do with is uh, when the police, uh, they, they revealed the cause of death to both of them. It was, it was for ligature neck compression, which what that basically means, looking it up myself, uh, checking it out, that means the two veins on the side of your neck were compressed enough to cut off blood flow, really, to the brain, is what killed you, as opposed right. to a lack of oxygen. So in order to apply that pressure correctly... Uh, belts or devices or something on a person would have to be at a certain angle in a certain way with a certain pressure. I mean, most people, maybe there's some people who do some UFC fighting or little martial arts and and the police department they used to a long time ago teach the sleeper hold. It's the same sort of deal, Mm. but it's hard to do. It's very hard to do unless you know how to get the right angle and the right pressure. So uh, it, it certainly will be telling what the autopsy results are on the marks and the angles and the imprints 
on, on the bodies. So at this point, police investigators and private investigators would not all have the same information. Police would still have most of the information. Correct. And, I, and I, my suspicion is, I don't know this, this is my suspicion, the homicide detectives will not share anything that they don't have to uh, legally share. I mean, they had to release, uh, you know, the, the, the bodies of the Shermans to the family, so they're entitled to, to, you know, to do their look. But I don't believe they'll be sharing anything else because they're still investigating. They want to find out the cause, who's responsible, how it happened, and they want to do it as conclusively as they can. However, as recently as yesterday, though, the police are just still calling them suspicious deaths. Were they always calling them suspicious deaths? Uh, yes, aside from the uh, sources, you know, very close to the investigation, who definitely believed very strongly in the, in the fact that it was very likely, you know, a murder-suicide based on what they were looking at. But, you know, the, the, the problem becomes there, and this is what the family wants to know. They want to say, well, just don't say that so casually. If you can't actually prove what you're saying there, we don't want that to come out and to be the official record. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's part of what they're looking at. They want to make sure that the official record is official. And if police can't absolutely say it, they don't want them saying it. They don't want that as being the the memory of, of, of these two people. How would police view this parallel investigation? Especially now that there's been a leak. Yeah, well, I mean, the leak would have come, as I said, somewhere outside of the police. It was outside of the police. And, and as I said... Would that, I, I, would that aff- affect the ongoing investigation, though? Well, they're going to make sure that they do not share information with anybody, that, that they don't want to have potentially leaked or out in the public while they're still looking at this. Uh, so I, I think that's how they're going to be treating it. And I think that the, the lawyer and uh, Detective Klatt, like, like, homicide people tell me, former homicide people, they said that someone like Thomas Klatt would not do anything to compromise a homicide investigation being investigated by the police. Do you think the family had some uh, involvement in perhaps letting this information out, trying to change the narrative? Don't know. I, I, I don't know. Is that a possibility? I guess it's a possibility. You'd have to look at who was who is privy to what information. And, you know, did the conclusions come from somebody else as opposed to the, as I said, the uh, objective information as opposed to the subjective, like calling it a contract professional killing just from an autopsy is, I mean, I I guess what they're saying there is they rule out the murder-suicide, they rule out someone doing it for hate, they rule out someone else doing it for some other motive. You know, so that's part of the difficulty with the conclusions that that were made in the story over the weekend, I think. The fact that this info has now been leaked, does this change the investigation in any way? Well, I think the police are going to continue to be tight on it. They've already spent a fair amount of time and a fair amount of resources looking at this. I mean, I, I think the big question is going to be is how many people do they have to interview based on what they know from everything that they have garnered so far about uh, the Shermans and their their last month or so of activity and what they were doing and who was involved with them and and, and who should be questioned and, and and who gets a little funky under questioning uh, and those sort of things. So uh, only the homicide detectives know how far along they are with that. There's there's definitely a lot of people to speak to on this one. A lot of people. 
Could info that the private investigators find help police, or chances are they already know that? I mean, again, how do you run two parallel investigations that don't fall over each other? Yeah, well, no, it's quite possible. I mean, all, all the investigators that I saw are all extensively uh, trained Toronto Police homicide investigators, and they, you just don't get them much better than that. I mean, they've been around the block, they've seen everything, they've gone to courts, they've prosecuted difficult cases, they've lost difficult cases. So they may just ask a question or take an angle that perhaps hasn't been thought about, and they would be smart enough to be able to maybe identify a piece pull on a thread and maybe run a lead down. So I think having more eyes on it, so long as they're professionalized, uh, aiming at the same outcome of finding some justice and some answers for this, uh, I think they'll, I think they could manage that actually. So you don't think there'd be like conflict between the two? I think there can be. I think there absolutely can be. Yeah. And that's why the police probably won't share with them as much as they may know each other and have connections. You won't share. I mean, it's, uh, If the police have someone that, and I'll just say, let's just blue sky and make something up here. We don't know. I'm not making any allegations. Right. But let's say uh, somebody uh, was involved with with them, uh, was the person who killed them, and they don't know if the police are on them or not. So they're privy to the private investigators who talk to the investigators and say, oh, look, they just found this out. Yeah. Right? And then they, they could maybe go and try and cover their tracks or do something. I'm obviously, I'm I'm storytelling there. I'm not saying I know anything like that. But that would be the reason why the police would keep the information very quiet so it doesn't tip somebody off. You see in the classic sort of police shows where the one of the guys who committed the crime is always around the police asking questions like in Colombo, right? Mm -hmm. You know, oh, why do you say that, uh, Inspector, right? They're trying to find out are they getting close to me or not. So that's one of the concerns of the police as as they're interviewing people. Uh, you said at this point uh, the private investigators would only have had access to the bodies, not necessarily the crime scene. When will they get to see the crime scene, or will they? It's a question everybody's asking. It's it's expensive to to guard that. The police apparently have done uh, a, a wide, wide array of of tests on different things in the house for everything they possibly could, uh, is my understanding. Uh, and what results they have from that or what they're able to glean from that, I don't know. And what they would turn over when they decide to release the crime scene, uh, I don't know as well. Is this unusual, Ross, for this sort of thing to happen? It is in in this respect, uh, Scott, the victims. These victims, billionaire philanthropists known worldwide, lots of money, family problems, family court problems, litigation problems, the high-wire world of uh, generic drugs, competitors, patent fights, but by all means, the most generous people you could ever want in terms of the community, in terms of giving money and doing things, and to have them lose their life so shockingly suddenly in a way where there's not a conclusive answer as to what it was is very unusual. We usually have more finality to to situations like this. Where do you see this going? I'm keeping my eyes on it, the same as everybody else. I'm, I, 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 I see that it's quite possible that the murder-suicide is going to, going to be the answer. I also see that it doesn't preclude the fact, based on some of the information about supposedly the crime scene with you know marks on the wrists and coats pulled down the back and this sort of thing, that's not, that does not seem consistent with the, 
with the sort of thing a, a murder-suicide would normally be. So I, I, I think it's uh, still pretty wide open. Uh, at the end of all of this, would the two investigative uh, bodies here, the police and the private investigators that the family has hired, will they end up in the same place when this is over? I, You know, I, I don't know. It, it may well end up that we may never know. We may never know. Uh, the cause it'll be listed as suspicious deaths with no with no certain cause of death, uh, or the motivation for it, or the, or, or who is responsible for it, uh, and that may be where it ends up. Uh, but usually, forensic evidence usually does a pretty good job of doing some pointing, and as we've seen in the past, it can take sometimes months or even years that sometimes some forensic evidence. Uh, turns around and seals a deal for you. We're seeing that in the other case here in the in the murders in in the gay village, where we're looking at murders going back to 2010, and forensics are coming up to help the police there. So we'll have to wait and see. We don't have, we don't know all the cards. Homicide does. We don't. Uh, if this does uh, turn out to be a murder, this cover up obviously quite elaborate. Well, there, there's because it seems a- quite complicated. Yeah, there certainly appears to be what's called staging, one way or the other. Like, to have the bodies presented in that way, the the way that bodies are left always tells a bit of a story that a a profiler and a homicide detective will look at to determine some of the motivations that are are behind things. So the, the fact that we don't know all the cards, homicide knows a lot of the cards, but who knows, maybe there's a bunch of uh, cards yet to be turned over out of the deck for them that they haven't seen yet themselves that could allow them to go somewhere else. There, something just may turn up. Something just may turn up that causes their investigation to go in another direction. And uh, I think the Homicide Squad is not so proud that they wouldn't move in another direction if the evidence didn't lead them there. Hmm. Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. A source has told media that private investigators believe the Shermans, Barry, and Honey were murdered by multiple killers. Ross, thanks for the time and insight. Fascinating. Uh, we'll chat soon. Take care. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As we were vacating the building on Friday, uh, it finally came down. Alex Pearson, of course, fell asleep in the control room, or sorry, in the courtroom, waiting for uh, this verdict to come down. We talked to her earlier on in the day, and then finally, as we left, uh, there was a decision in the gas plant trial uh, finding David Livingston guilty, uh, Laura Miller not guilty. To talk more about all of this, Alex Pearson, host of On Point with Alex Pearson, heard weeknights right here on CHML. She is with us now. Alex, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My absolute pleasure. I'm so, awake now, by the way. Exactly. So what time did he wander back in and say, all right, let's get going here? What time did this verdict come down? Well, uh, three o'clock. Yeah, that's what yeah, I thought. Just, just as we were you getting know, out the door. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you could tell. You could tell, like, in the last seven or eight minutes um, of his ruling that he was going to uh, slam um, David Livingston. Are you surprised um, at the outcome here? Um, I, I'm, I'm pleased that someone actually paid a price for this because I actually thought, um, I wasn't sure which way it, it could go. It wasn't that there was no evidence. It's just whether or not the judge in this case could actually close all the holes left by the crown that couldn't find its, its face from its behind. I mean, they just mm. were inept uh, in presenting their case. Um, so, look, the fact is, 
uh, David Livingston was found guilty, but just because Laura Miller was acquitted doesn't mean there was not a lot of purse language, words like dishonesty. and this, You know, there was a lot of um, uh, condemnation upon both uh, for, for what they did, because never in dispute was the fact that emails were erased and that Peter Feist was brought in off the street to do so, and all sorts of you know, uh, other naughty behavior. So that was never in question. It was just, can they find both guilty and, and, and you know, without any reasonable doubt? And when it came to Laura Miller, there was reasonable doubt in the fact that there was no evidence to prove that she had been in discussion to actually get those administrative rights to then erase emails. So what happens to David Livingston now? What about a sentence? to say i don't think he'll get much more than a fine uh maybe you know maybe he'll have to do some community service they were talking about jail time is that going to happen that won't happen will it i can't see it happening um you know it's a crime against you know a computer it's the first first time um if there were going to be jail time you can bet there'd be an appeal by his side for sure will there be an appeal in this I think it depends on on whether they want to go through this process again and with an election coming. Uh, well, they wouldn't go through that. Are you kidding? The wheels of justice? You think they? No, but still, that? even that the thought nice. of it, it wouldn't. You know, rather than putting this all to bed, it keeps the story alive, right? Well, yeah, but it doesn't matter for 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 Kathleen. Yeah. David Livingston is fighting for to clear his name. Yeah. Uh, whether or not he'll do that, I mean, his lawyers cost probably about fifteen hundred bucks an hour. Does he want to go through that again to take the penalty and, and be happy it wasn't more serious and go? For Kathleen Wynne, uh, this hangs on her regardless. And while, you know, she's been quiet about this this ruling um, and tried to distance herself by saying, well, not my government, not me, she can't do that because she was the co-chair on the campaign. So she was part of that very inner circle, the upper echelon of that circle, which was in the decision-making process of that gas plant. So to suggest that she didn't have any knowledge would mean that she was um, living on Mars. The other thing that ties to her is the fact that there are, are cabinet documents dated July 29th that shows she signed off on a payment for the, can- for the canceled um, Oakville plant, which would have been done three months later in the election. And so that cost taxpayers $800 million. So to suggest that she's not somehow tied to this, it just doesn't work like that. Uh, what will, uh, will Win drop her lawsuit against Brown because of this? Remember when Brown said, uh, made the, the uh, no. reference to standing trial? Will, will this nope. put all that to bed or will that continue as well? No, that'll continue on because it's all politics. And, you know, they'll do anything to shut down the conversation about this. But I've got to be honest. You know this this headline wouldn't drop in the lawsuit. Wouldn't dropping the lawsuit, you think, though, shut down the conversation? No, libel chill is a pretty uh, nice little technique that you can really kind of you know call someone out and, and put them on notice, and 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 that's why people do it. It's like I'm going to sue your rear end off if you keep going down this narrative. But there's there's lots of ways, Scott, to make an attack ad out of this without even mentioning her name or or. Um, or even it, that that's a completely different trial that's Sudbury this is a completely different matter and by the way Sudbury was an elections act this is a criminal trial this is the more serious of the allegations so the opposition both the NDP nor the conservatives are going to let this go and nor should they because frankly this is 6 years in the making this is upwards of 2 billion dollars that has been essentially taken 
you know, from the taxpayers. And for anyone saying, well, I don't really care, you should. Just look at your hydro bill. That's part of the reason why the costs of your hydro bill are so astronomical, is because you're paying off this political um, vote buy. Uh, the CBC says today, and I'll read this, this is a quote, the Ontario PCs have used this trial as part of the recent attack ads against the Wynn government, calling the Ontario Liberals politically corrupt. Friday's ruling, coupled with last fall's acquittal of two other Ontario Liberals who had faced bribery charges in an unrelated case, could force the PCs to change their tactics. I don't know. I well, don't know what how, to do. I mean, I, I think wouldn't it just it, enforce the tactics? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter who didn't get charged or who did get off. The point is, they got a conviction. They don't. They don't care who didn't get convicted. They're going to run with who did. Well, yeah, they 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 can rightfully run with it. Both opposition, <laughs> because the, the bottom line is, this was the highest member of of, of a political team that has gone down uh, on a cover up. I mean, the lengths to which this government will go to retain power really is what this case was all about when it comes to politics. Just how far they would go to not just buy a couple of, of political seats, but then cover it up. And, and, you know, it's only by the grace of God that the opposition uh, was able to get these documents in front of a legislative committee and, and before everything was destroyed. So this is a trial about... Um, political corruption, corruption, cover-up scandal. So, yeah, the opposition has every right to run with that. With that. How will Rin, how will Wynne react to this news? She's placing distance between uh, her yeah. and Livingston saying, hey, not my government. Well, yeah, and that's why I say, not so fast. You can't just say, well, not my government, because she was such a high-up member of this team. And because her, docu- her, her signature... You know, is on these court documents or on the gas plant documents. So to suggest that she did not know anything or wasn't partially to blame for some of these costs is nonsense. It's just it doesn't work like that. All right, Alex Pearson with us, host of On Point with Alex Pearson. You'll hear her tonight on Global News Radio. Uh, you want to give the show a plug? What do you got on tonight? Oh, we got a busy show coming up. Um, we will talk about minimum wage and how it's affecting. Um, some of the most vulnerable. So if you've got a loved one in, you know, uh, in needing care, like um, that they've got mental illnesses or they need care because they've got a physical disability, those places that are being slammed by this, min- this uh, minimum wage, and they're having to cut back on beds and staff. So we'll talk about that and also this whole thing about the summer jobs program. It's a lot bigger than the issue of abortion. This is a political move, and I'll explain why. Alex Pearson, host of On Point with Alex Pearson tonight right here on CHML. Alex, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Cheers. You too. Let's bring in Peter Gray, political science professor at McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So what does this conviction of David Livingston mean for the Liberals moving forward? Uh, I don't know if it means too much, really. Uh, I mean, I think this question has really been priced into how Ontarians are thinking about the government in place. Uh, I mean, I think there wasn't too much surprise uh, in the conviction. I mean, the story was known. Uh, you know, people might have been more surprised if there hadn't been a conviction. Uh, really? Because normally these th- things don't end up in a conviction. Uh, so you were, were you surprised or not surprised that it did? Uh, I wasn't too surprised that it did. I mean, the uh, obviously, as the case went through, the Crown, some of its evidence they had to put aside because it was felt that some of their witnesses had been too closely involved in the police investigation, which weakened the case uh, and meant that they had to withdraw a number uh, of the aspects. But, 
you know, the rules are fairly clear about the destruction of documents. And when you have the right, the former chief bureaucrat of the province, uh, and you know, now telling the judge, you know, that he had in fact told Livingston to be careful and to not do these things, and that he should be, you know, ensuring the records were kept. Uh, I think there was, you know, enough credible evidence that one would have expected that some form of uh, you know, conviction would be found. And even in the case of uh, Laura Miller, who was acquitted, I mean, the judge nevertheless, you know, he said he couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, but certainly uh, felt that uh, she was knowingly involved in some aspects uh, of this scheme. So, uh, I mean, in a sense, it's it's damning. I mean, uh, Ontarians should be upset that the chief of staff to a premier, to Premier McGuinty, would act in this manner. I mean, it's a serious thing that's happened. But in a way, Ontarians, I think, kind of knew this story uh, when it came out and had already rendered their own, if you like, guilty verdict in terms of knowing that that's what had happened uh, some time ago. I think the biggest harm to uh, to the Wynn government is that here we are starting towards the next election, uh, and you know this issue is again back front and center. So it helps define how Ontarians are thinking about this next question. And if the point of Patrick Brown's campaign is really to make this an election about whether it's a government that's been there too too long, is too complacent with power, is too willing to use uh, Ontarians' money for their own gain and to uh, play fast and loose with the rules, well then, this is certainly a nice way to frame that election campaign uh, for for his own purposes. so uh, is the public looking at the looking at this? No, uh, nothing new here. Old news. This is stuff that we already use. The conviction doesn't uh, doesn't fortify that in any way. Uh, I don't think too greatly. I mean, I think it's more about what's the conversation we're having about Ontario politics. Mm. And uh, I mean, it moves from you know a topic of something like the minimum wage, which is quite broadly popular for the government in place, even though it hasn't really moved their favorables or uh, people's voting intentions. Uh, very much at all uh, to something which certainly Kathleen Wynne doesn't want to be talking about every day in terms of the question has he been there too long is she trustworthy with the public's money uh, the people around the premier even if Kathleen Wynne wasn't involved in this you know is is there a liberal team that's just too quick to look after their own self-interest and to avoid public scrutiny even if that means breaking the law Wynne has said, not my government, had nothing to do with it. Can she do that? What's her relation to this? Can she claim um, immunity because it was under McGuinty's rule? She was campaign co-chair, I understand, too. Yeah, she was campaign co-chair. I mean, the Liberals obviously are making the argument that, well, there's two camps, and she was in a different camp, and the real reason they wanted to delete these emails is it was McGinty's people making fun of Kathleen Wynne and her people, and they didn't want that public. I mean, people can believe that if they will. I mean, I think most Ontarians... There's probably a little bit of that, too. (laughs) I mean, I I think, you know, again, it's... uh, with Kathleen Wynne, it's not like there's a court case against her. I think people can make the distinction that she wasn't directly involved, but yet, nevertheless, she's been too complacent about it. And that even if she wasn't directly involved, uh, you know, a government is more than one person. And the people who are involved in making this decision, uh, you know, are still in a way involved. They were accepted and part of that government. So you can't simply say that, well, McGinty, you know, resigned and we have a new leader and suddenly we'll turn the page. I think you know, I think voters are fairly savvy in terms of figuring out, 
Yeah, someone's not directly involved. Uh, when people claim that it was, you know, directly them that did it, it doesn't really wash. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, that's that government, and that's that government which is coming before uh, the electors in three or four months to decide whether they deserve another four years. So, I mean, I think, again, I think voters are sophisticated enough. People who hate Kathleen Wynne are going to say, well, of course she was directly involved and she can't just wipe her hands of it. Uh, I think people who are a bit more on the fence have, again, that, that mixed position to say, yeah, there's there's a problem here with this government. You know, the gas plants are one part of it. The Sudbury by-election, they probably are thinking it was another part. You know, decisions to, to go through public-private partnerships, even though they're costing more to the taxpayer, is again part of it. I mean, they're putting these things together and then making a decision. Okay, is that enough to not support this government? Or are there things the government's done that make them willing to, to give it another go? Are the alternatives necessarily going to be much better? I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the undecided Ontario elector is probably weighing a lot of different things at the moment, and certainly this would be one piece of it. Uh, Wynn uh, filed a lawsuit against Patrick Brown for making the comment or referring to the fact that she was uh, standing trial and, and not these other people. Uh, and, of course, she she voluntarily uh, testified in the case. Will she drop that lawsuit? Does she want to draw any more attention to this at all, or will she just let it go? Uh, I think she'll hold on to it. Uh, I mean, on a day-to-day basis, no one's talking about the lawsuit. If it's in her interest to bring it up, you know, if, if she's having some success as framing uh, Patrick Brown as say anything, right, as someone who will say whatever, whether it's truth, uh, truthful or not, maybe it will come back to the fore to, again, make the point that, you know, even though uh, she wasn't on trial, he had made that claim and he was given a chance to withdraw it, even though he knew it was false and he, he stuck to it. So, uh, again... Does that so, hurt you know, Does that hurt Patrick Brown, do you think, Peter, especially when they're trying to present a softer, gentler conservative? Hey, we're not Mike Harris, we're Bill Davis. I mean, should he have just, you know... Should you have just stayed out of the mess and let her let her go down in flames? Why even jump on board? Uh, I would agree. I mean, uh, and there's many words he could have used that would have been truthful and still would have been damning. Exactly. <laughs> Kathleen Wynne. So, uh, you know, again, I don't uh, fully uh, understand that unless he feels that ultimately, for a lot of Ontarians, when you see the premier going around suing people, uh, it makes them uncomfortable, right? Is, is that almost another form of abuse of power? When you're the premier, you've got a lot of capacity to pass laws, to make decisions. How come you're going around suing people? You know, is that a sign that you've got too thin a skin? So I presume on the the conservatives' point of view, they feel that the way this looks in the public uh, is ultimately beneficial to them, and certainly more beneficial than uh, making a public retraction. So where is Patrick Brown? Because, you know, you think of the minimum wage issue last week and the week before and the whole Tim Hortons brouhaha and, you know, now obviously this, I mean, you know, we've heard comments from Vic Fideli and so on, but like, where the hell's the leader? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, you know, making beautiful photo uh, spreads for, you know, other campaign documents. Hmm. Uh, I think really his strategy is to not take any controversial positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the idea is, uh, this is you know, re- results such as these, right, uh, this guilty verdict, is another nail in the coffin of a government that's been around for 14 years. But that, that doesn't. But really. that's. But that doesn't make sense if he's doing things like saying uh, what he said and, and drawing lawsuits to himself. Like if you're going to stay out of it, stay out of it. If you're going to jump in, jump in when it's worthwhile, not over things that are stupid. I mean, it just seems odd. I suppose, but uh, I guess you know he's really, uh, I think, in a tough spot around the minimum wage and this Tim Hortons thing, for yeah. instance. Uh, I mean, even within his own base of support, the majority of his members. 
uh, or sorry, not of his members, of people who at the moment are identifying as conservative voters support the higher minimum wage. Uh, and so he's in a, in a bit of a fix because he, on the one hand, wants to be the voice of uh, sort of angry small business in the province who feel that the, it's too much too fast and it's hurting their capacity to survive. But he knows that's unpopular with a lot of his voters. And I think, you know, similarly, the extension of that to Tim Hortons, again, puts his, it puts him in a tough place between uh, where his, his own voters are quite divided about uh, how they feel about this minimum wage increase. So I think his view is to let this blow over and to find a way to come back. Presumably, he'll use this uh, this guilty verdict as, as one means of changing the channel and bringing it back to the question of probity and ethics. Peter Grabe has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. The gas plant uh, trial verdict came in on Friday. David, Livings, uh, David Livingston found guilty. Uh, Laura Miller uh, not. Peter, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We have all heard that uh, the U.S. government is shut down, uh, which is kind of nice. I think maybe if we did this for a while, let things cool down a bit, it might be different when we open it up on the other side. Uh, this all coinciding with the one-year anniversary of the President Trump, uh, pres- or of, uh, the Donald Trump presidency. Uh, the U.S. government shut down Friday after continuing to uh, just be at an impasse on a critical issue. A vote uh, is to take place at noon today. Democratic aides are saying the votes aren't there to reopen this government. To talk about all of this, Renan Levine is with us, lecturer, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and with us now. Renan, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. You're welcome. So why did this happen? Why are we where we are now? Well, there were, well, I I would say there's two immediately precipitating events, and then there's one really big issue that's been going on in U.S. politics for quite a while. The one really big issue that's been going on in U.S. politics for a while is that it's like Democrats are from Mars and Republicans are from Venus. Um, America, I think all of your listeners are well aware, has been increasingly divided under very predictable red-blue lines um, that was only magnified by President Trump's election in 2016. And that divide has been visible in Congress for about 20-odd years, and in many ways it's only getting worse. There's not a lot of moderates out there um, in the Senate or in the House that can essentially swing votes, go from one party to the other. And complicating matters is that the Republicans themselves are very divided. So they often, even though there's not very many Democrats they can draw upon to gain a compromise, they, they need to because their own party um, often, even though they have a majority, often isn't there to provide that majority. Hmm. The two immediate precipitating events was one, either by accident or strategically, they failed to renew some legislation to give health insurance to kids. And the second thing was, back in the summer, President Trump got rid of the DACA, uh, or the Dreamers. And these are kids who were brought to America, or they stayed in America illegally. So it's a lot of people who had like a temporary work visa or a student visa. They brought their kids with them and then never left. And so their kids were sort of caught in this limbo where they don't know any country other than America, but they're also not, don't have the papers to legally stay in America. And Donald Trump decided to get rid of that program. And he said, Congress needs to fix this. And, and he signaled at times that he would support Congress if Congress would 
authorized to allow these kids to stay in America in, along the lines of a program that was initiated by President Obama. And that program officially expires in March. But I thought that we had a deal here. I thought that this, you know, it appeared that we were, especially when the president made comments, you give me something, I'll pass it. Um, it looked like th- that there was a deal. Why did this go south? Well, the, uh, I don't know if I can use the word on your broadcast. Is that what but it was? Was, was it was it the word? That, was that what that changed is, everything? Well, it, it was. Well, I think most of them, us in the media in the world, focused on that word that starts with an S. But that was the meeting where they were expected to get the president's, you know, okay officially on saying, okay, we've got a deal. We're going to provide these protections. In exchange, we're going to give the president and more hawkish members of the Republican Party um, some support for um, more immigration restrictions, more laws, uh, and more money to, um, if not a physical wall, then create a more impervious border. And that meeting went south. It was supposed to be a here. We're briefing you on this bipartisan agreement we have, which is why the Democratic senator from Illinois and the Republican senator from South Carolina were there. And they walk in, and they felt ambushed by the president, that the president, even though two hours before, had said, yes, this sounds great, he had seemingly completely changed his mind, and then went beyond that and insulted people from countries, uh, shall we say, without a lot of wealth and development. So so, So that, I think, really poisoned negotiations, and it also made it unclear, because even though we seem to have a deal now that's going to allow the Senate to vote for a short-term spending bill, part of that deal is that they will bring this up for a vote. But whether the president signs off on it, which he's going to need to do, and whether the House of Representatives will sign off on that immigration deal means the shutdown may end today or tomorrow. Is that the meeting that's is that the meeting that's scheduled for noon today? Or was? Uh, well, or was, right. There was there was a meeting, and they just had a key vote about 20 minutes ago um, to allow the debate to continue, so they'll have the vote. Um, they'll pass a short-term, or I would expect they will pass a short-term spending bill to allow the government to reopen and stay open for it looks like three more weeks. But then the House has to do the same thing. And part of the deal is, is that within days, this bill about these children immigrants will finally come up for a debate and a vote. It's expected to pass the Senate, but it still would need to pass the House, and it would need to gain the president's signature, or they would need to get two-thirds support of both chambers, which I don't think they have in order to override a presidential veto. Going back to prior to the S-hole comment, should this have been a slam dunk? Was this on its way to conclusion? Uh, what do you mean, this, the, this DACA? Yeah, yeah, finalizing this deal so the yeah, government wouldn't I, shut yeah, down. I, I, I think, well, in the Senate, it was certainly a done deal. Um, there, was, there was enough Republicans that feel very strongly about it that they would then join forces with the Democrats, who, of course, have 49 out of the 100 seats. So there's not much of a majority there for the Republicans. So bringing a few other Republicans over gives the Democrats clearly a majority. Um, and so I think it was a done deal in the Senate. The problem is, is that in the House of Representatives, this, this is where this bill has died before. It hasn't been dying in the Senate. So 
that's where a lot of commentators, including myself, are a little surprised at this afternoon's news because it looks like the Democrats are surrendering for, in many ways, an empty promise instead of really holding on to a very powerful negotiating position, forcing this government to be shut down in order for assurances from the House and the president that they will actually do something about these um, child immigrants. Uh, Trump w- uh, blasted the last president uh, d- uh, during the last uh, shutdown, uh, solely blamed the president for this. Whose fault is this? Can he blame the Democrats for this? I mean, at the end of the day, where's the art of the deal? He's the president. <laughs> right. Well, this is a president, of course, prides himself on deal making. And I, and I feel like the old Wendy's commercial, where's the beef? Yeah. Where, where's, where, where's the deal making that you're, you're supposed to be such an expert at? Um, the opposite is clearly the case. He's allowing other people to be making the deals. Um, so I think there's a lot of Democrats that are scratching their head and scoring some political points by pointing out the president's faults. Um, but shutdowns uh, work very predictably in terms of public opinion. If you are a member of one party and you support that party, you tend to think that they're not the ones to blame. The advantage for the Democrats right now is that the Republicans are really on their heels. President Trump's approval, although I would expect it would go up a few points as a result of this controversy, as other Republicans move to support him, um, President Trump's approval is under 40% of America. So most Americans, I think, are clearly seeing this as Trump's fault, but it's not because they're Trump supporters that are now aghast that the dealmaker can't make a deal. Uh, Americans are seeing this as I was saying earlier, because they are very badly divided. And so the Democrats are looking at these events in one way. The Republicans are looking at these events in another way. And I think they had a very effective um, criticism of the Democrats. The Democrats were prioritizing these illegal immigrants over citizens the military, anyone who needs these government services right now. Hmm. But, you know, this is like reading green eggs and ham in a filibuster. I mean, this is what Americans wanted out of. This is one of the reasons Donald Trump got elected. They wanted anybody but the status quo. They wanted someone to shake it up. They wanted someone to get things done. How do you create a deal or where's the art of a deal when there's nothing but divisiveness? I I think you're making an excellent point that... I think this divisiveness is, in many ways, what drove people to support Donald Trump. Yeah, and now, the, Trump, and now Trump's in charge, and the same thing's happening. We got a shutdown. It's like, well, what are you doing? You're right, the you're right, driving, right? And, and I think Trump's strategy is to, do, of course, will be to deflect blame and to continue to emphasize that you know, sort of his populist rhetoric that these elites are stopping him, and he's going to point to either a general swamp that involves both establish Republicans and Democrats, or continue on this message that the Democrats are preventing him from being this disruptive force that would magically make things better. And of course, that argument appeals most to people who are not carefully paying attention to politics. It's a lot of noise to them. So these nuances about this deal and that deal and the status of these immigrants, even though this is a very popular program, I think in many ways they're going to miss it. But the big question then will be, are they going to then look for the next outsider, perhaps Oprah, who's going to come in and shake things up? Or are they going to say, wait, we need some people who know Washington in order to get things done in Washington, not 
some snake oil salesman who says, oh, yes, mm. I'm going to change everything. Boom. How can you blame the opposition for things the White House does? Um, is his base, does his base buy that? Does his base buy that, you know, I can't get things done because uh, these people are stopping me? And, well, you can say that when you're in the opposition. You can't say that when you're running the game. <laughs> right. Well, uh, this would not be the first time that... Um, no, that's true. That I will have scratched my head and wonder either, A, how can he actually believe this, or how can other people believe what he's saying? Um, but I, I think a lot of people, I mean, would emphasize it, and this, I think, is one of the things that's different about Americans and Canadians. Um, Americans really do process a lot of the news, a lot of society, um, from a social identity that's very much wrapped up in a partisan identity. We don't have that, at least not yet, in Canada, where there's these clear people who say, yes, I'm a conservative, I'm a liberal, maybe even some that say, I'm an NDPer, and that's in part because of the NDP, and in part because we don't have a long history of a unified conservative party. Right, it's only been about 20 years, not even 20 years, was it 12 years, that um, the conservatives have been that unified. So there's a lot of so there's a lot of noise on the margins in Canada, and so I think a lot of Canadians don't process the news, even if they're just as partisan Americans, but I don't think they process it as, oh, well, we're liberals or we're conservatives. In the U.S., that very much seems to be the case. Not only are they only processing the news from their particular vantage point, but they're not even listening to the, the same news channel that their, their opponents are, right? Yeah. You've got Republicans watching Fox, yeah. and whatever Fox is saying, and they're not, they're not it's an echo chamber. Hmm. They're not hearing disagreeing, disagreeing voices. And the Democrats will largely be doing much the same. Yeah. It was interesting, uh, President, former President Barack Obama was on with David Letterman on his new show, and he was talking exactly about that point, how it's just coming from two totally different places. Uh, Trump tweeted, uh, this is the one-year anniversary of my presidency, and the Democrats wanted to give me a nice present. Uh, hashtag Democrat shutdown. Um, how is Trump viewing this, do you think? Oh, I, I think Trump is absolutely enraged. Um, he's been really upset. I mean, it's been a rough 2018 for him, and I think he was really looking forward to, I mean, I think if the shutdown really does end today, the one big accomplishment the Democrats will have done is really a personal affront against Donald Trump, because he was really keen to go down to Mar-a-Lago, right, uh, north of Miami, resort, his winter White House, where he had charged people thousands of dollars to party, at his resort, of course, his profits too, uh, and I think his ego was really looking forward to getting reassurances that um, he's been fabulous, and the Democrats denied him that opportunity um, to bask in the adulation of some very, very wealthy backers um, and lobbyists um, of his cause. So I, I think he's very, I think, I think this has been a bad weekend for him, and now there's news reports coming out that there's another store, another book coming out um, from a Fox News host that's basically saying he's incompetent. And, of course, there's the continuing controversy about these non-disclosure agreements that he paid off a porn star who claims to have had an affair with him while he was married. 
That's not going to go over well with evangelical Christians, who are clearly a big part of his base, right? <laughs> are are the Democrats playing this right? Should they have shut this down? Should they let this? Should they keep this going as long as they can? Or again, you know, at what point do you stop attacking Trump and realize the reason he was voted in is because people don't like establishment politics anymore? At what point do they start providing an alternative as opposed to keep kicking this can? Well. Look, I think one of the important indicators is the senators who are opposing um, the resumption of, of reopening government are the senators who seem to be the leading voices to try um, to um, be the Democratic candidate to uh, oppose Trump in 2020. So, um, I mean, clearly... I think the answer is it doesn't appear to be the case. Their strategy would seem to be, well, we can one-up Trump and we are going to be the, we are going to get support for being the standard bearers of the Democratic Party. We are going to lead the Democratic Party against Trump because we are going to get the reputation of being the most anti-Trump person there is, as opposed to someone willing to compromise. That is going to work in a number of states, but clearly, like in Alabama, where we just saw a special election, um, that candidate, that Democrat won largely because he did promise that he would work with both sides, and he has been supportive of keeping the government open. How do we explain the position that America's in, uh, considering times are pretty good for the United States right now? Stock market up, jobs up. I mean, he's got, he, you know, he's got lots to boast about, but still keeps shooting himself in the foot. What would it be like if times were tough? Well, or I, I, I think the more interesting question is, if he wasn't, if Donald Trump was not shooting himself in the foot, yeah. where would the Republicans or the Democrats yeah. be today? And the answer there is actually really clear, which is, if he wasn't shooting himself in the foot, Donald Trump would be coasting with really strong approval ratings. Yeah. Except for Donald Trump, economy really does, is what matters to a lot of voters, and that is almost always reflected in presidential approval ratings. This past year has been notable in that, despite the economy, the president's unpopular. So I think what we're going to look at first over these next nine months before the next midterm elections, the congressional elections in November, and then to 2020 is, is a strong economy going to allow the president's approval rating to rebound? Or is this going to be a matter of Americans saying, well, this style is awful? And it's, you know, and, and sort of a remarkable, you know, history-changing moment for political scientists like me of saying, well, you know, the economy is not everything anymore. At what point, and we've only got a few seconds left here, at what point do Donald Trump supporters uh, become disappointed in him? Because here's a person who had a great opportunity, was supposed to do this, supposed to do that, what have you, and for the most part... Um, his problems have been caused by himself, shooting himself in the foot. At what point do his supporters say, you've taken a great advantage, uh, you've, had a, you've taken a great opportunity and blown it with the buffoonery? Uh, I think that, will, that may not come until about a year from now, um, when um, almost many of his Republican allies, if the polls stay where they are, a lot of Republicans are going to lose their jobs. They're going to be out of office. And I think that's when um, that backlash will likely build. Otherwise, I'm sitting here as an American in Canada, scratching my head, going, gee, I thought that moment would have already come by now. <laughs> uh, well, you're not the first one to think that, Renan, that's for yeah. sure. 
Uh, Renan Levine has been with us, lecturer, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, Scarborough. Thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.